uh, all you all can open to Matthew 19 this morning. Uh, you know, you, every once in a while you get a passage that's difficult, and uh, this one is going to be difficult for me, um, just because of the content matter. Uh, this is a subject that uh, is is hard, and it affects a lot of people, and and uh, so, um, you know, as you're as you're thinking about it, just just pray as I go through this, because I want to I want to get it right, and I want to do it in a way that's that's kind. So this morning we're in chapter chapter 19, where we see the Pharisees put Jesus to the test by bringing up this controversial subject that it still is a difficult topic for us today, and that's divorce and remarriage. And I keep seeming to get these passages somehow, so <laughs> not sure what that's about. Um, it's hard because I know many of you people that are you know, here and, and maybe listening and, uh, have been through this. And, and we do two things as Christians in the church. We either treat divorce as if it's a sin that can't be forgiven, you know, the unpardonable sin that you're marked forever, or we, we treat it kind of like it's not a big deal at all. And both of those things are, are a messed up way to view divorce and remarriage. Um, I love God's word. I love that all of it has been put here for our benefit. I would not be doing my job as a pastor if I didn't teach the whole counsel of God. And, and so I believe this is, even though it's difficult to hear, it, it's good for us to hear this uh, because around 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's a messed up statistic. When you think about it, 50%, it doesn't change in the church, which doesn't make sense. Um, and this tells us a couple things. It tells us that marriage is really hard, especially when you consider that we're sinners living in a broken world, um, and, and that we're going to have to work hard to keep our marriages together. So this is also one of those kind of uh, law-heavy passages. So, so there's this kind of the law, some, some passages are, are filled with gospel, and some passages are filled with law. This is law-heavy. And so, you know, there are these times when we see one proclaimed over the other, and, and that's kind of one of those days. And in our section today, Jesus is speaking to people who are under the law and proclaiming what the law requires. And the law, just so we don't think of it as this bad thing, he was put in place for our good. I mean, if you're, if you're not a good bowler, you know those things, they stick up so that your ball just kind of, this is what the law does for us. It keeps us from going into the, the gutter or, you know, our, our ball going the wrong direction. Um, it was placed, put in place for our good. But the problem is we're not good law keepers. And, and this is why we so desperately need the gospel. This is why the good news, Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. He came to perfectly fulfill the law and then credit us as though we had done it ourselves. This is amazing for, for people that stink at keeping the law. So even though we've been gifted with somebody who is able to fulfill the law, all the righteous requirements for us, it still benefits us when we follow his commandments. So as we go through our passage today, we're going to see clearly what God desires. So we're going to see this his perfect will for us that leads us to abundant life and blessing. But many of you might feel the, the weight of the law pressing down on you as we go through this passage uh, because you, you either aren't doing what, what you know God wants you to do, or you haven't done it. And the challenging part, you know, for, for a pastor is, is sometimes having the law pressing down on you is, is the best thing I can do. Sometimes that's, that's what we need because the law shows us that we fall short of God's standards. It shows us that we desperately need help. It drives us to God for salvation. And it's what can sometimes cause repentance and correction in our lives. So for some of you here today, you need to hear what God desires and how he feels about divorce and remarriage. And you need to maybe begin to fight 
in a way that you haven't been fighting for your marriage currently or maybe try to reconcile one that, that's still fixable. Um, and then for some of you here today, you know, you've already kind of lost that battle maybe and, and you're weary and you're feeling beat up. And so what you need to hear this morning is the gospel of grace. And so my goal is, you know, this is God's word is like a two-edged sword. It, it does surgery. I, I don't know how it works, but, but for one person, it can bring comfort. For another person, it can bring conviction. I'm going to trust God with what he has, but I'm going to do my best to unapologetically, faithfully proclaim what's said here in this passage. And then, and then hopefully at the end, also extend some grace for those who need it. So here we go. Matthew 19, starting in verse one. It says, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses give one, uh, or give one to, uh, sorry, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. All right, it starts out by telling us that Jesus is moving away from Galilee and, and entering into the region of Judea. And so we're, we're beginning to see kind of the, the story move towards its climax. Jesus is heading toward the cross and, and large crowds are following him. No doubt they've, you know, Jesus's name is famous now. He's been doing all kinds of amazing things. And so people are clamoring to, to get near him and to see what's going on. And there's a lot of people that have needs. And so they, they want to, you know, reap the benefits of what he can do. And I love that it says people with all these varying needs come to him. And, and what does our compassionate God do? He heals I love this. And, and, and the Pharisees are very aware of what's going on at this time. They're, they're keeping tracks on, you know, Jesus is kind of like, you know, on their, on their list of people to watch, right? And, and you would think that they would see all this healing take place. You know, what, what kind of questions would they ask? You would hope it would be like, how are you doing these things? Where does this power come from? Are you the Messiah? Those aren't the questions that they were coming up with though, are they? No, they were determined to trap Jesus. And so they come up with this you know, they have a planning meeting and they come up with this controversial question that, that they think is going to land Jesus in trouble no matter how he answers. And um, R.C. Sproul points out that they would either, you know, Jesus would either incriminate him, himself theologically or politically, depending on how he answers their question. If he answers one way, he breaks the Mosaic law and they've got him. If he answers the other way, he, he basically uh, makes the same mistake John the Baptist made when he, when he called out Herod's sin and he gets in trouble politically. And I don't know if you're living in the same world I am, but I feel this way all the time today. <laughs> no matter how I answer, I'm going to get in trouble with the church or I'm going to get in trouble with the, you know, it's just like, wow. So I'm sure they thought they'd come up with a perfect trap, but they, they kind of didn't know who they were messing with, right? 
I would have loved to have been at the debrief meeting after this whole thing went down. You know, they're walking away going, well, that didn't work like we thought it was going to work at all. And they're a lot of finger pointing and, you know, you were supposed to, well, yeah, but you, you know, I'm sure it didn't go well, but I, I love the thought of that. So what was this clever question? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Or basically, when is divorce okay? It's a hotly debated subject then, still is today. Um, there were two main rabbinical camps at this time that you could side with. Listen to how this goes. One was conservative and one was liberal. So things were totally different back then, right? <laughs> and it mainly came down to the way you interpreted passages in the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 24.1, which says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of a divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house. Now, the controversy came down to the way you interpreted found some indecency in her. Um, the, the, the conservative rabbis said that that indecency referred to adultery or infidelity. That's what it meant. Whereas the liberal rabbis said that it could be almost anything that displeased you as a husband. So, um, you know, the wife embarrasses him, disgraces him, displeases him in some way, any, almost anything. You could, you could get a divorce. Some rabbis even gave examples of making a dinner the husband didn't like or the wife breaks his favorite dish. It's like, and then, I know, it's like, well, you know, you, I, don't like the, I don't like that meal. I want a divorce. I mean, that's, that's messed up. One rabbi took the phrase, if she finds no favor in his eyes, to mean, I don't find you pretty anymore and I think she's prettier and so I'm gonna divorce you and I'm, you know, this kind of stuff. It's, it, it's kind of a, it, it's disgusting. It's messed up. You know, men were allowed to divorce their wives for basically any reason. And this seems to be the accepted view of the day at this time. And, and we can say, well, that's horrible. But we've moved past this today. Now we have what there, it's called a no-fault divorce. You, you can just go in and say, I don't have any reason. I just want a divorce. And they'll say, okay. So at least they had like, she burnt my dinner kind of thing. <laughs> but we don't even have to have that. The question is, what is God's heart towards marriage? And Jesus, in his reply to the Pharisees, starts out with the words, have you not read? So he's assuming you guys, you guys should know this. You know this passage. I shouldn't have to tell you this. And he's going to point into to a very clear and well-known passage that reveals God's desire without any ambiguity. And I wish more people would follow Jesus's example here because people love to go to the really obscure and hard to understand passages to make some of the most important decisions in their life. You know, don't, don't do that. <laughs> go to the really clear ones. That's, that's a better way to go. Go to the ones that are easy to understand. But the truth is, people know exactly what they're doing when they go to the obscure passages, don't they? It's not that the Bible isn't clear. It's that we don't like what it says very often. And so that's the real issue at hand. So in verse 4, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This passage we read at weddings, uh, we're all familiar with that. He refers them back to the beginning, which speaks of God's created order that we find in, in the book of Genesis, which was mentioned this morning, to let us know exactly what God had in mind when he made us. If you're an inventor or a designer of some kind, an engineer, when you make something, you have something very specific in mind as to how that thing is supposed to function, right? And God is no different. 
He's, he's given us an operating manual to follow that's very easy and clear. Um, two things are mentioned. This is what Jesus points us to. The first one is that God made them male and female. That's who he designed and intended marriage to be for. You're going to encounter people today that say, Jesus didn't talk about this. Jesus didn't take a side here. Yeah, he did. It's very clear. They're wrong if they say that. Where he stands on the matter couldn't be more clear. And I don't want to get too graphic, but if God is our designer and architect, the biology that exists works with a male and a female. Anything other than that does not perpetuate the species, so to speak, right? So again, not unclear. The second thing mentioned is that God intended that marriage between a man and a woman to, to last forever. Till death do them part is what we say when, when we do our vows. Um, it's not supposed to come apart. God joined it together. So it's, you know, we use that, the picture of gluing two pieces of paper together, letting it dry, and then trying to take, take them apart again. They don't come apart. They're not meant to. And so you end up with a lot of damage. So this means very clearly, according to the scriptures, that monogamy between a husband and a wife who have been joined in holy matrimony is the desired will of God, and that divorce is not the desired will of God. And this is made explicit through these law passages that I was talking about in the Bible. Verse 9 is, is an example of that, where Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We see the same thing repeated in John, I'm sorry, John, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you go back to chapter 5, Jesus says something very similar. In the, in the parallel gospel accounts of Mark in, in chapter 10 and Luke 16, these words from Jesus are repeated there. Uh, Paul 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to read 1 Corinthians 7, it just lists out all of these possible scenarios for us. But he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, Romans 7, again, it, it explains that we are bound by the law to our spouse until death. Only death ends that, that, that marriage in, in Romans 7, it makes that clear. So Jesus' stance is clear. The disciples' reaction you know, kind of shows how clear it is even more because their reaction is, they hear what Jesus says and they said, well, if such is the case, nobody should ever get married. That, that was their take. All right, if there's no way out, why would we ever do this? That's how they respond. So they hear something that sounds really difficult to accomplish, which means they bought into the liberal view, by the way. You know, which, which rabbinical camp had they signed up with? The one that says, I can get out of, you know, get out of marriage free card. That's the one they were buying into. So I hope we, we would all just agree that God's law on marriage is super clear. That's the law part, right? Mankind, as I said, though, has a big problem. We're not good law keepers. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the issue here. And so the fact that sin has broken something in us that causes us to turn away from, from what God, you know, his good design and what he desires is, is the issue we have to address. And that's what Jesus goes to when he talks about the heart of man. So he gives the reason divorce exists in verse eight. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, if you want to know what this looks like, I'll, 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 I'll be a demonstration for you. I am really good at making everything about me. Um, my happiness, my needs, uh, my fulfillment. I'm, I'm, I'm an expert at it. I don't want to brag, but I'm really good at it. I'm a specialist at being completely selfish and getting exactly what I want when I want it. 
And, and this is where hardening your heart towards God and others comes in really handy, okay? It makes it way easier to do. But, you know, at the same time, I, I want to be able to get all that, but I also don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want anybody to, to make me feel crummy about that. And, and this is kind of what's behind their question about it. When, is it. when is it okay to get a divorce? They're really asking, how can I do what I know is wrong and still feel okay about it? Or how can I do what I know God doesn't like and yet justify it in a way that makes me still feel righteous and, and w- where I'll retain you know, his, his favor and his blessings in my life? And you can see this in the way that the Pharisees respond to Jesus's question. They ask, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? He says, you know, no, in, in a way that they don't like. And then they, look at their response. Why did Moses command it then? See what they did there? How come that prophet that God gave us, why did he say it was okay then? Why did he tell us to do it? Well, is that accurate? Did Moses command them to get divorced? See how a hard heart will, will twist scripture and turn things to get what it wants? Moses did not command divorce. He allowed it. Why? Because the people demanded it. Whether, you know, even though it wasn't what God wanted or intended, they demanded it. So th- the way this works, and, and this is one of the reasons that our hard our heart gets hard in marriage sometimes is, and the reason we're so discontent sometimes is because we have wrong thoughts about marriage. We have wrong expectations as to what it even is sometimes. And so I, I, when I do premarital counseling, I always ask the question, why do you want to get married? And invariably I hear, you know, answers back. I mean, you always hear like, oh, because I'm in love, but you always hear things like, uh, you know, I want to be happy. Um, I want to, you know, find fulfillment um, this kind of stuff. Um, it, it, people see marriage as a means to an end. So it's like, it's this missing piece of the puzzle that I'm looking for. And the minute that gets put into the puzzle, everything's going to make sense in my life. And it's all, everything's going to be complete. That's the idea. And this is ingrained into us, isn't it? Because if I were to say, uh, what's the key to living happily ever after? You would say, well, you've got to find your Prince Charming or you've got to find your Snow White. That's the way we think about this. And the expectation is that it's that person's job to meet all of your needs, satisfy all that's missing in your life. I'm kind of surprised that our wedding vows don't reflect that more because that's really, you know, that's what we're thinking. Like I take you to be my spouse, to make me happy, to fill all that's been lacking in my life, to take care of me, to meet all my needs. And if you don't do that, well, I'm going to go find somebody that will. That's, that's kind of the way we think. We would never say that and nobody would ever marry you if you did. But, but that's the expectation, whether we realize it or not. That's kind of the unspoken thing that, that we do. And there are two huge flaws in this way of thinking. The first one is you're expecting them to do something for you that there's no way you're going to do for them, right? And then the, the second thing is that that's not what marriage is about. They can't do that for you. O- only God can. Only God can satisfy your soul. He's the missing piece of the puzzle that when that gets put in, everything else comes together and comes into view. And this is by design. Why would God create another person that that could do what only he's supposed to be able to do for us? He's basically setting us up for idolatry, if that's the case, and he wouldn't do that. So anything or anyone that we put in God's rightful place, it's destined to fail. It won't work. My wife is amazing. I mean, amazing, but she can never do for me what God does for me. Only he can, and I can't do it for her, right? To to put that kind of pressure on each other would be ridiculous. Marriage, without a doubt, 
is a gift from God, but it's not meant to complete us. Yes, it enhances our lives when it's, when it's done the, uh, you know, the way he wants us to do it. It enhances our lives. Finding somebody to partner with and serve God together with uh, as we walk through this life is a tremendous gift from God, a tremendous thing. Just remember, they're a flawed sinner. You're a flawed sinner. If your expectations aren't right, it's going to be difficult. And you've got to keep Christ at the center of your marriage in order for it to work. So it's this idea of like a pyramid, somebody one time said, where you've got the the married people down here, as they grow closer to God, they grow closer to each other. That's the way this works. But if your expectation of marriage is flawed, it's just going to be a matter of time before disappointment sets in, hardness of heart sets in, and then what? You start looking for an escape route. And this is what we're specialists at. You know, we, we, we're really good at finding loopholes. And when you want to find one bad enough, you'll find one, right? It's funny how many Christians become Bible scholars when they want to find a verse to support the thing they want. They pull out all the concordances and they're just like, you know, it's got to be in here someplace. This is what we're like. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They, the people of Israel found a way to get a divorce, send their wives away and pretend like it was the right thing to do. So we've established that God's will for marriage is clear, that man's heart toward the things of God is broken. Now what? I love how gracious our God is. You know, I love that um, he remembers that we are but dust. He remembers how he's made us. Yeah, I know, there's the but dust thing. You can go two ways with that, people. And they both work, so I'll, I'll let you decide. We are fallen people who live in a, in a broken world and His grace makes allowances for this. So the Bible, even in our passages we read, it gives at least two, maybe three reasons for divorce and remarriage, which again, knowing what God's will is for marriage, this is, this is incredibly gracious. The first one we already saw in verse 9, which is except for sexual immorality, which refers to infidelity or marital unfaithfulness. So if if one spouse cheats on another spouse, divorce and remarriage is allowed. And the interesting thing is, adultery in the Old Testament ended a marriage too, but that's because the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was death. So Jesus is kind of saying this is still a viable end to a marriage, but only for the innocent party, right? The second exception for divorce and possible remarriage is found in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about uh, a believer who's married to an unbeliever. And he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And it goes on in verse 15 to say, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So first thing to notice there is that God does not hold the unbeliever to the same standard as the believer. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and you put on the team jersey, you, you've agreed to a set of rules to live by. So you've got abandonment by a non-believing spouse releasing you from the marriage, and that along with infidelity are the only two scriptural allowances for ending a marriage apart from death, obviously. Um, any other time there's divorce and remarriage except for these two, the Bible calls it adultery. It's just what it calls it. Uh, there is one other possibility for um, remarriage and divorce, and that's if the divorce happened before a person became a believer. This one's not explicit in the scriptures, but it stands to reason that if, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if it happened prior to that, um, I, you know, this is something I would proceed cautiously with, but it, but it makes sense that that's, that's a possibility. 
The other question we get asked all the time is what about um, physical abuse in a marriage? And we would just flat out say, the Bible may not be clear about this, but this is an obvious thing. If there's a, a husband who's beating his wife or children or doing something abusive, that family needs to get safe and that man needs to go to jail. And we will help with that anytime that's, that's, a, that's a reality in your life. We will help you with that. You're not alone in that. Um, so we would strongly advise separation, long-term separation, maybe permanent separation in a situation like that. Um, but in general, and I mean in general, not abuse, separation is a really tricky thing because what it does is it allows you to breathe for a bit. You know, you're in an uncomfortable situation and so you say, well, we'll just separate for a while. Well, now all of a sudden you go, oh, this feels better, <laughs> right? And you like it. So what are you gonna do? Well, you're not gonna try to work on that and get back going again because I don't like the way that feels. And so very often separation is just a step towards divorce is what it ends up being. So, um, I, you know, we would, we would encourage separations to be as short as possible and during that time that you're actually working on reconciling your marriage. Putting in the work is hard, but, you know, that's part of the deal. So as I said at the beginning, there are times when the law is exactly what we need to hear because it makes us fight, it makes us battle, it makes us not give up, especially if it rules out the possibility of moving on to somebody else. I think sometimes we need to, to understand this. If the Bible doesn't give you license to remarry, how does that change things? What if, what if that wasn't an option? Would it... Would it change you? Would, it, would you try to save what you already have? You know, would you weigh your options a little bit better if, if being single was the only other option that you had? And I find it interesting that the Deuteronomy passage that the Pharisees would go, they went to, it goes on to explain more. You know, it talks about the husband giving his wife a certificate of divorce, but then it specifies something kind of interesting. It says that if another man marries her, and then he gives her a certificate of divorce, apparently everybody was doing this. It says that the, the husband can't take his wife back. He can't, he can't receive her back. She's already been married to another man, so it's over. And now I have to ask the question, why does this need to be specified? Apparently, it was a common enough desire that it had to be addressed. What does it mean? Well, it means that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. I wish I could have this conversation with people at the first part of this, you know, not, at the, not when everything blows up. You, do you know how lucky you are to have somebody who knows you like inside and out knows you and wants to be married to you, don't take that for granted. That's a big deal, right? Man, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that I found somebody that with all my quirks and idiosyncrasies and bizarre things, I'm not gonna go into what those are, you know, they're, <laughs> but she still wants to be married to me, you know? If you stop thinking about this person that's out there, this missing piece of the puzzle, this soulmate, all the stuff that the society, our society, and just love the one you're with. Be grateful for who God has given you. See them as a cherished prize that was meant for you and build that marriage. That's what we're called to do. Okay, so there are biblical reasons for divorce and remarriage, but here's uh, the really important thing that we don't hear people say enough. Just because something is allowed doesn't mean that it's required, and it also doesn't mean that it's the best course of action. Uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten in one of those all-you-can-eat restaurants, right? You can, <laughs> but should you, right? Is it the best course of action? Do the consequences make it? You know, we need to think about these things. Some of you may have a biblical reason to divorce. Doesn't mean you have to. And I have seen amazing stories of God's grace and redemption from people. I, I mean, I can think of one couple that they've just celebrated 50 years and there was infidelity. 
and it was forgiven, and it was repaired, and they're married today, and they're a testament of God's grace. And, and, and this is amazing. You know, even against all odds, this can happen, and that's because our God is able to do miraculous things. He's a specialist at reconciliation and redemption, and it's such a beautiful thing when you see love and forgiveness triumph you know, and, and see a marriage saved. Our marriages are a picture of the gospel to the watching world. We need to understand this. They tell a story of a God who loves his bride and will not give up on her, will not leave her, and will not forsake her, even though we give him every reason to divorce us every day. Think about the reasons we have. Infidelity, it's like, check. Yeah, I do that. Abandonment, yep, check, I do that. And he says, no, I will love you. I've set my love upon you and you cannot get out from under this. That's, that's God's view towards it. And when, when grace like that has been extended to us, it allows us to extend it to others. That, it's not a coincidence. This path you know, butts right up against what Pastor David taught on about forgiveness. 70 times seven is what we read right before this. So forgiveness can be super hard. Putting in the work to reconcile a marriage can be really difficult. No one is saying that it's going to be easy, but divorce isn't easy either. And you talk to anybody that's been through this, uh, the, the impact that it has on your children, on your family, on your friends, on your church, on your testimony, it just is a much bigger thing than we think it is. Another important principle that we, we see in our passage that doesn't get discussed much is that divorce doesn't necessarily mean you have to remarry. Uh, I, I, again, if we're looking at marriage as the answer to what fulfills us, we're always going to go back there. But sometimes it's okay not to get married. If you're single, you don't have to get married. And if you've been through a divorce, you don't have to get remarried. This is what Jesus talks about at the end when he's talking about eunuchs. We don't deal with eunuchs a lot today, but this is what he's saying. If you're, if you're single and you're content to be single, be single, right? And he, he sandwiches that between two statements like this is going to be hard for somebody to understand. You might not be able to understand it. You might be, not be able to pick up what I'm laying down. But if you can be single... It might be the best possible thing. Paul certainly makes that point in 1 Corinthians 7 again. It's not a bad thing. It allows you to be single-mindedly single -mindedly devoted to God um, and to serving Him. So if God is your all, and He's the one that completes you, and He's the one that you find your identity in, and you're content with that, it's okay to be single. And you've got a church family to plug into that, that hopefully you know, doesn't quite, you know, take care of all of that, but it's certainly you're not alone. You have a family. So marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. According to the stats, second marriages or remarriages are even harder. The stats, you know, if you, you know, second marriage is 67% end in divorce, 74% of third marriages end in divorce. That means it's hard. Uh, when it comes to these matters, I would just encourage you, seek counsel from those who know and love you best. Don't make these decisions alone. I can't tell you how many times I see this happen. Somebody gets out of a very long relationship and, and without talking to anybody, <laughs> they jump back into another one, even another marriage, quickly. And, and I think, how, did this, how does this happen? And it, it, you know, but it does. So we're here for you. The church is here for you. Talk to people. Um, our hearts are cunning and, and we, can, we can convince ourselves of lots of things. So don't do this alone. Um, I want to say this as well. It's possible to have a second marriage or, or, or remarry and have it be completely blessed of God. Some of you are living proof of that. Our God can do amazing things. I know this is the case. Um, I just wish more people would take more time before they 
they jumped into it and that it would be affirmed by godly people in their life. So, okay, I warned you it was going to be law heavy, um, but I, I want to make sure that I do balance this out with a little bit of the, the gospel of grace. So if you've been a part of a failed marriage, I would encourage you to, to make sure you've done everything that you're supposed to do. Clean your side of the street, make apologies. You know, everybody has a part in a divorce, even if you're not the main reason for it. Some people here are divorced without any say in the matter. And, uh, but, but once you've done that, once you've cleaned your side of the street, receive the grace that God affords you through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you are forgiven. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's just not. And if you've made to been, you know, ever been made to feel that way, I'm sorry. Receive the grace that is yours in Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sins that is yours. It's so easy for us to live in shame because of, of divorce, and the church certainly has helped out with this. You know, we're, we're great at it. Um, I couldn't help but think of the, an example in the Bible of a woman uh, that Jesus interacted with. And I think about the way Jesus treated this woman and the way the church would have treated this woman. And I'm thinking of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Been married five times, and now she's living with a guy that's not even her husband. And, and, and you'd think, you know, Jesus would have been like, oh, you disgust me, get away from me. No, he, he, he made an appointment to meet her at a well that day and to interact with her and to offer her living water and to reveal himself as the Messiah. Jesus didn't reveal himself. Remember when most people used to say, hey, don't say anything to anybody if they found out. He just tells her straight up, yeah, I'm the Messiah. That's God's heart towards sinners. And, and I feel like, you know, I'm a sinner and I, I, I've experienced this. This woman understood what she received from Jesus to the point where she was ash so ashamed. You know, she went to the well by herself at noon when it's hot because she didn't want to deal with all the gossip. And then she runs into town saying what? Come and meet a man who knows everything about me, everything, and loves me and wants me. That's our Lord. And, and, and I love how this passage starts out with Jesus healing broken people. We are broken people, and we have a God who is compassionate and kind and loving, who wants to heal all of our brokenness, and he can, which is such good news. So, you know, I know I'm just scratching the surface, and I can't read anymore because I can't see. <laughs> I know I'm just scratching the surface of this topic, and there are so many nuances and caveats and, you know, different circumstances with everybody that's been through things like this. It's not a cookie-cutter cut and dry situation. I, I know I may have stepped on toes today. I may have opened old wounds. I would just invite you, you know, if you have more questions than answers this morning, come talk to us, please. Um, but, but just understand every one of us um, has the same degree of brokenness that, that, that the same remedy is, is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I would ask you to run to him today. Father, thank you so much that uh, we have a passage like this that can challenge us where we need to be challenged but also um, cause some, some angst in us too. Um, Lord, I just pray that, that your spirit would minister to each one of us now as only you can. Uh, we need this, Father. And so we just commit this to you now, and, and I just ask for your blessing upon your church and upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen.